Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Christ and Coffee podcast. Today, I have my good friend, the Reverend Dr. Patrick Dunn, joining the program. Uh, Patrick is a good friend of mine from seminary, and he's here to talk about the decline of Christianity in the West and the rise of global Christianity in the South. So before we begin, Patrick, just good to see you, man. How are you? How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. It's great to be with you. This is a a pleasure. We don't get enough chances to catch up, so this is awesome. Yeah, no, secretly, that's why I love this podcast, is I get to catch up with some old friends and uh, just to have conversations that I don't normally have, especially with COVID around the corner. It's like, uh, you can't just go have conversations uh, with strangers anymore. You have to, you have to like, you have to be intentional about creating them. So, so good to have you, man. How how you been? Uh, Where where are you right now? So I am, uh, I'm at home in New Haven, Connecticut. I am a, a pastor for discipleship at a church called Elm City Vineyard Church in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, so yeah, I'm at home. We are, uh, we are living this normal pandemic life, I suppose. We are also, like many churches, trying to figure out how to care for and love our people in the midst of being online, coming back in person, uh, trying to figure out how to do that safely and wisely and, and honor what God is doing in our midst. So we're doing well, but well with like the big asterisk that everybody is experiencing of well and also it's a lot of it's a lot right now. It's a big challenge. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but prior to coming back to the States, were you in South Africa um, or Germany? Which one was it? I forget. That's true. So I started it. I've been a pastor of this church for about three years. Uh, prior to that, I was in Germany for a year trying to finish up a, uh, a PhD in theology. Before that, I was in South Africa for about five years um, as a pastor affiliated with the Uniting Presbyterian Church in Southern Africa. So these are Presbyterians in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Zambia that are all under one denomination together. So I served in those churches. That was immediately after seminary. So before that, I was at Princeton with you, Hag. Yeah, the good old days. The good old days. Um, good old days. Um, wow. So so you you actually spent time, um, I mean, you're, you're from America. In, uh, what, what state? Indiana, correct? Or... That's right. I grew up in Indiana, uh, so yes, I'm I'm uh, entirely white bread middle American, and uh, and yet have had been blessed to have a lot of opportunities to travel and to live all over the world. Yeah, I, I'm I'm always shocked about the Indiana Pacers how they always like consecutively are a good team, <laughs> like they always make the playoffs. I know you're a huge huge Pacers fan. Um, I I am. We are always we have for so much of my life we have struggled right at that like just barely making the playoffs, not enough to like win a championship, not good enough to win a championship, but not bad enough to like get a number one draft pick. So yeah, we just it, press on, we press on. I feel like they've been the most consistent team since like I started following the NBA with that, just like good enough to make the playoffs. Anyway, we, we, yeah. we digress. So, okay, so you you had this experience growing up in the middle of America. Um, you, you did a, quite a, some time ministry in South Africa and spent time in Germany. So how would you characterize like your experience as just before we jump into like the bigger data trends, just like the personal trend of like, how was it doing ministry in America versus doing ministry in South Africa? What were some of the differences? What were some of the similarities? That's a really good question. I think um, 
uh, I think that there might have been a part of me uh, when I first started going to South Africa, I was a little bit, I was at a place, even when we met Haig, like when I was beginning seminary, I was at a place of being a little bit burnt out on some parts of the American evangelical church in particular. And, and in its, uh, in some of its blind spots in relation to justice, to things that I, seemed like a part of God's kingdom work that just were not apparent in what the, the church was doing. I think maybe naively, like I perceived at first uh, being a part of it, Af churches in Africa in particular, as somehow being more authentic. Um, I don't think in the end that that was precisely true. I don't think that they're uh, there can be similar, there, there can be, a, African churches can have their own kinds of hypocrisies. Um, there are ways in which like grace and sin are, are constantly uh, at work in all kinds of different churches in very similar ways. But what was unique and what was um, profound for me, I think, was just uh, the, particularly for where I was at in South Africa, like to be exposed to some of people's most immediate needs poverty, crime, the AIDS epidemic, uh, a water crisis, a drought, um, tuberculosis. Like there was just a, there was a huge number of different challenges that were landing on the church's doorstep constantly. And that, that fact alone sort of forced the uh, many churches in my experience to just like really take stock of what it would mean to follow God in relation to some of the least of these. And um, and often these churches were filled with people who were also the least of these. And so there was like a sense of um, not necessarily a greater authenticity, but just a greater invitation from God to like see the life of Jesus lived out. And that was a powerful thing in Africa. Wow. Yeah, I think, um, uh... I mean, so pretty much the big thesis of our conversation is like there's numbers that are showing this tremendous decline of Christianity from the Europe, Europe, North America, and a giant increase this past century in the rise of Christians from places like Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And I'm wondering if a lot of it has to do with this economic thing where like the first will be last and the last will be first getting to a point where we're so comfortable, so self-reliant. Um, we have all the resources in, in, in the West where there's this, there's just no reliance on God whatsoever versus other parts of the world when it's just, I, I, it's either I, I need God to survive versus God as, a, as an option. Um, I, don't, I don't, what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on, on that link? I'm, I'm just trying to flesh this out. I bit. really, yeah, I think that that, um... That really gets me thinking, I think. I mean, certainly if I if we approach the question of Christianity and its relationship to either West or sort of global South, um, if we approach that question from the perspective of like sociologists, we look at numbers, we, we look and see that um, there are, for instance, uh, now in, a, in the US, there are 26% uh, of people respond to surveys in the most recent data I saw as 26% respond in what the, the category that they now call just nuns, which would include N-O-N-E-S, which would include <laughs> not, not the Catholic nuns. Are, yeah. Not the Catholic nuns. Yeah. 
um, people who are would that's just a catch-all for like people who would be considered themselves atheists or agnostic or would just say that they have no really religious conviction in general that 26 percent is about nine percent higher than it was a decade ago so 17 percent to 26 percent um, and correspondingly like the number of people that call themselves Christians has declined from about uh, by about 12 points and so we look at things like that and we say well that that seems to suggest a certain trajectory for what uh, the future of Christianity in the West. Simultaneously, we look at the rest of the world uh, and Christianity is exploding in many parts of the world. Christianity is um, one out of every four Christians in the world right now is in Africa. Um, and there are estimates that that could be like as many as two out of five, 40% of Christians by the year 2030 could be in Africa. There are some people who, uh, it's hard to get good data on this, but like there are some people who would argue quite seriously, I think that there are, it's quite likely that there are more Christians worshiping in China on a given Sunday than there are in the, the whole of the United States these days in, in small house churches, all kinds of different situations. So we look at that and we say like, there seems to be something going on there. Um, maybe what we could call a kind of decline of Christianity in the West what we could also call just a shift of Christianity towards Latin America, Africa, Asia, um, that that is sort of where the center and future of, of Christianity lies. And I think it does raise for us exactly what you're saying, Hag, of these really interesting questions. I mean, that's the sort of sociologist's perspective. For me as a pastor, I, I often think, um, I'm not always convinced, I guess, that uh, that the numbers tell the whole story. I think that I think that the life of following Jesus has, has never been extremely popular. It's never been uh, particularly easy and it's never been something that has been widely embraced. And I think that, that that sort of authentic Christian life in pursuit of Jesus is doing about as well in the West as it ever has been. What is less, uh, what we see less of is sort of a, a broader kind of cultural incentive to identify as Christian or to see sort of either the Christian church as representing a kind of cultural value that you hold or as maybe just a kind of your primary social setting or primary point of connection with other people. And I, so some of that I think is related to what you're saying, um, that there is a uh, part of what is, is happening in the global south is a real thriving opportunity for people to see and experience what god is doing in relation to some really challenging circumstances sometimes and uh, to look for hope to look for uh, an authenticity of expression that speaks to them and where they are at um, some of it also and this is like where even african christianity can have some of its places of hypocrisy. Some of that also begins to look like uh, their own kinds of state churches forming in, in different countries. So for instance, the previous president of South Africa where I lived for a while was a man named Jacob Zuma and he had a, um, a, a, a formal sort of council of pastors in the ways that you would expect maybe people to call on the bishops of mainline churches, but instead of mainline churches, they were like the pastors of some of the largest kind of 
mega churches, prosperity churches in South Africa, that in a sense were now functioning as a kind of uh, like state or a state sanctioned sort of body of approval. Um, a group of people saying, at least, uh, at least acting as if they could say on behalf of God, like we approve of what you are doing as the leader of the state. And that also includes like, there is some of that going on as well, that part of what is happening in Africa is just that there are going to be many more Africans as a percentage of global population uh, in the future. And many of them will be grow up in Christian cultures and that will be real for them as well. Wow, wow. You mentioned the prosperity gospel. I mean, I think, is this an export of America <laughs> going over to uh, the rest of the world? It's because it's, it's it, it, instead of, uh, it's like the, it's like a, it's a twisted form of Christianity being exported, especially for those who have nothing. Um, what was your encounter? You encounter that in South Africa or any of your research? Yeah, I, that's a really, um, that's really interesting observation even to like, think of it as an American export. There is some, uh, there is some truth to that. The, the largest church in South Africa, in fact, one of the largest churches in the world with, I mean, they will claim up to 15 million members, but we know for sure that they have at least 3 million. Uh, it's called the Zion Christian Church, um, headquartered in South Africa. The Zion in Zion Christian Church uh, does not stand for the Holy Land. Uh, that it's a Zion that refers to a town called Zion, Illinois, which was a place where a uh, a kind of uh, faith healer, medium, uh, prosperity preacher named John Alexander Dowie started a ministry, and then to sort of like foster and cultivate the prosperity he was gaining, he basically planted a, a town and. Uh, was both pastor and sort of like the Lord over this town. Uh, and then that kind of prosperity church began to plant other churches uh, all over the world, planted some churches in South Africa in the early 20th century. And then those churches uh, under the leadership of a man named Ingenas Lekganyane, this was a, he was also a, a prosperity preacher who just was actually far more excess, successful than this than this John Alexander Dowie had ever been, and uh, created an enormously large church. So, a lot of people from the West, I think, part of their first encounter with uh, Global South Christianity often does happen to be through the lens of this of a prosperity churches and pros this prosperity gospel. I think that that we often because that's our first encounter with it. Uh, we often assume that that is a, um, that there's, we're looking for like some reason to figure out why, like why, you know, why would the church in the global south be prone to this in a way, but in actual fact, like we are equally as, as prone in the west uh, to the prosperity gospel. And in fact, we have multiplied it in many ways. Yeah. I was not expecting you to actually talk about a specific ministry minister from Illinois. You're literally bringing it over. That's hysterical. Uh, I, I mean, no I would, yeah, I would meet um, occasionally. Like I remember running into a guy in Lagos, which is a city in Nigeria at the, at the airport. Um, 
a, a fellow, like the only other white guy in, in my vicinity who is an American and we struck up a conversation and he was a pastor. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, where's your church where, and he didn't really have one. He, he was just like a, he was a, a pastor who was making an American who was making like a really quite a good living from traveling all over Africa to different prosperity churches, uh, kind of preaching as a guest preacher and kind of firing up them up with these sorts of revivals that would uh, bring in more money. And I think what was, what was particularly challenging for me though, as I spent more time in prosperity gospel churches, and I still, I, I still think about, uh, I still think about this often, was to just realize that there, when I was around them, um, what was in a way most shocking to me was to find that there were some people in those churches who were just really faithful followers of Jesus, like were just extraordinarily genuine in their faith, even sort of while their church was almost like actively trying to lead them astray at times. And that has really, ever since then, that has really like made me even wrestle a little bit with how I think about uh, the church and even sort of church as the guardian of the gospel in some way in relation to what God is doing in the lives of ordinary people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an amazing point. Um, and you could replace prosperity preacher to a preacher who has a scandal, uh, has fallen to sin. Um, I mean, like right now, like in America, we've had those scandals with like Ravi Zacharias and um, Carl Lentz in the city. Uh, that doesn't mean like their whole ministry is like to be thrown out of the bad water, but it's still wrong and evil, what, what, right? especially like Zacharias did and Carl Lentz. But like, not to put any pastor under the bus, but like it's very common for these pastors to lead people astray or maybe they've been falling in sins in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the rest of the church or most of the church. I don't know. It's, it's a good thing. That, it's good to think about. I think sometimes we may place too much pressure on the pastors. And then sometimes it's, we create models where we want these celebrity pastors uh, and that we, we, we kind of elevate the pastor to a really twisted and bizarre perspective. And it, it always leads to some sort of toxic culture where whenever one specific individual is lifted up in any church setting, it always gets weird in some way. And some, sometimes it's prosperity gospel. Sometimes it's just, oh, this person is such a good teacher or is entertaining. But, but if that becomes the focal point of a church, it stops becoming a church. Yeah, um, I think that's a really good point. And it, it does like, it feeds off of itself sometimes. I mean, we as pastors, there is a, there is a sinful part of us that like maybe loves that or is fed by that in a in a bad sort of way but also uh there is a part of churches sometimes that that long for that kind of like a figurehead someone that they could put on a pedestal there's something about us as christians that maybe sometimes projects that onto people and the more that we project that onto people the harder it is for them to bear the more that they both kind of don't love it and also live with it and are kind of addicted to it and then it sort of all falls apart in these these really awful public ways yeah you have any additional data because it's not just africa here this movement is manifesting itself in different forms in different parts of the world like you mentioned china being a house church movement 
you know it's so it's that it, it's the opposite of this mega church uh uh setup it, it's more of like literally the local churches are meeting in secret in houses and that's why it's hard to get actual numbers because it's it's all underground but there's this multiplication effect of all right we're going to use your house now to, to be a church um what, what is what are some of the other data you have before we jump into other parts of the world yeah absolutely the um it is extremely uh, difficult to get great data on some of the house church stuff, particularly in China, where it's probably most prevalent. Um, I think our our best estimates are that the uh, they're probably closing in. So Africa would be slightly ahead of Asia right now in terms of just total number of Christians, but only slightly. That there's probably as many as um, closing in on half a billion Christians in Asia, almost 500 million. And that so far from what we can tell over the 20th century that the Christian community in Asia has been growing at twice the rate that just the, the general population in Asia has been growing. And a lot of that, you're right, has been happening um, particularly in China through much smaller gatherings and through much more interpersonal contact. There are there are some mega churches, Singapore, South Korea, like there are some extraordinarily large Asian churches that, uh, but a lot of where the gospel began in many places and certainly where it's beginning in parts of Asia that don't have much of a uh, Christian background or Christian heritage in any respect, begins with this like interpersonal, these house churches, this, this like disciple making, just as you see in the gospels will happen one-to-one in small groups that is uh, about a kind of like intimate experience to which God speaks into a laying on of hands, a multiplication of the Holy Spirit that uh, that then later manifests into like larger and larger gatherings of, of folks. Yeah, absolutely. And like some of these mega churches are not all prosperity gospel either. There's some really good mega churches that uh, make sure there's small groups, there's actual discipleship, um, and I think, uh, I mean, there, there's also different cultural aspects to it too, and how people worship that we have to consider because each country, each culture has some sort of like things that work and don't work. And I think uh, part of the beauty of this whole movement, it's like, we're talking about multiple co cultures, multiple different economic positions. Um, so it's, it's hard to just like put one thing on it. Like, like, like I was trying to, I don't, I think it's a fool's thing. But you mentioned that it has to be multiple things at play um, with the rise of the global south. Um, Absolutely, and uh, like to be clear, I'm definitely not I'm definitely not an expert on uh, global south Christianity nor on African Christianity, and and partly I say that just because I'm not sure anyone could be an expert on them. They are a multiplicity of a huge number of different things uh, happening simultaneously, and some of them. Um, and the, the question for us, for Christians in those places, and, uh, and for us who want to come alongside of them, is how to like foster the best of what the Spirit is doing there, and to avoid some of the pitfalls that we ourselves have fallen into at times in, in the West, which is a different sort of thing maybe than just asking, you know, for particular paradigms or sizes of churches or whatever. Um, it is actually ultimately asking about like where do we see where do we see a real life where do we see real uh, of God's own life giving life to people in these different places and 
I, I know you're you're super observant, and uh, I mean, you were just saying earlier how you're like partly partly during seminary, you're seminary, you're 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 fed up with a lot of the hypocrisy you see in America. What what are some of the other pitfalls that you kind of get on on that you notice that contradict the life of Christ? Oh man, I go. Uh, I can go on and on. Um, I'm asking you to just go on a rant, please. <laughs> I mean, I again, like I. I don't, uh, um, I can't really speak for something called the American church necessarily any more than I can speak for the African church. Uh, but I can identify in some of my own experience, particularly being around uh, growing up in a very small town in uh, kind of the rural, almost entirely white Midwest. Um, that there are just ways in which uh, what ends up being true for everyone is that we permit our churches to replicate some of the blind spots that our societies uh, already contain. And we often tend to value churches as places that will uphold for us a particular way of life. And for us, for many white American Christians, like that has become a uh, a place where we see our faith as primarily upholding a certain sense of identity for us, could be with respect to our country, with respect to our race, uh, with respect to economic status. And all of those things um, first and foremost, like it's very hard to to draw from the life of uh, a God who gave his own son up up to the cross for us, like a it's very hard to draw from the life of Jesus a, uh, a real clear sense that, that God is simply interested in preserving our way of life for any of us. Um, there is something that Jesus comes, he finds people who are uh, living a certain way of life all over the place, and he, he often draws them out of it into something that looks quite new, even quite risky for them. Um, and some of that then ultimately, like, for us undermines uh, some of the, like the, the things that we have taken to be most obviously true. I mean, I think one of the obvious things that, that pop up is just our materialism, our, our sort of love of uh, way in which we casually assume that we ought to simply ascend some kind of ladder, whether that is career or financial or social, um, that we have not, for instance, stood against um, the forces of American culture that tend to segregate our communities. We have, uh, whether we intended to or not, we have very casually just followed along with kind of moving our, our families up to the bigger houses and the nicer neighborhoods with the fancier jobs. And uh, so we are, we certainly do not look the Church in America does not generally look much like God's multi-ethnic kingdom. Like we don't resemble always the in our gatherings, the kinds of gatherings that will happen in God's presence in the future. Um, and we are just not very attentive to uh, some of the people that suffer the most in both in our midst and abroad. And all of those things uh, to me are the opposite of what Jesus exemplifies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, 
especially for like those Americans who have never traveled to impoverished areas of the world. Um, I, I really think like every person needs to do that just to have a sobering understanding of, of the scale of poverty that exists. Um, I mean, yes, there's poverty in America, but, but I mean, I know you've done ministry in very dire circumstances. Um, and it's, it's, it's just like all Americans are privileged with the amount of resources and luxuries we have, all of us. And I, and I think um, it's quite scary to, to know that we're gonna be responsible for how, how we use our resources. Um, and, and are we aware that we are in a state where we can actually do a lot, but if we're just caught up with our own sort of drama and not thinking big picture or thinking about other people, um, like you're saying, we're more focused about climbing that career ladder than uh, serving the kingdom of God. It gets really murky and tricky and, uh, and it gets twisted. The gospel gets twisted. And I think that's how you get these gospel, uh, prosperity gospels emerging, um, whether it's financial from America or, or, or these prosperity gospels that are not about money, but they're more about like, all right, if I serve God, all my all my career ambitions are going to be fulfilled. Everything I want is going to happen. And that's like goes against Christianity. It's not your will be done. It's got, got God's will be done. Um, uh, follow me, not Lord, Lord, follow me. And, and, and this leads to really twisted forms of Christianity that are, that are exactly opposite. But we kind of just like, like you were hinting at, like we get comfortable and we just go with our ways and then then we take a look at it and there's nothing special about this Christianity. It, it's, it's just, it's just normal living with a Christian stamp on it. Yeah. I mean, you put your finger right on it. I think, uh, I, um, I even, even having lived back in the U S for the last few years, I, I came back to the U S after some years away. Uh, and when I returned, I had a, I was married to, uh, a wife that I love very much who is from Costa Rica and she had never lived in the U S before. So seeing even our life, our lifestyle, our style, our culture through her eyes in the last few years, has just only opened up for me more places where like I was, where I was tempted to take a lot of things for granted that I was just not even, I mean, the places where sin creeps into our life most often is not, always the places where we know very clearly that we are facing a temptation and we are trying to figure out how to um, how to overcome it places where sin really gets to us is the places where we realize we don't even think that there's a choice being asked of us at all like we just have not even realized we are just going along and kind of going with the flow and a lot of that is precisely for what you're you're saying is that it's a reflection of uh we we go along quite easily with whatever seems to be benefiting us. And, and in that way, we betray something of like how we have put uh, ourselves on a throne at the center of our lives. We betray that we have made idols out of our own selves and our welfare, uh, our lifestyles, what seems normal to us. And so among the things that traveling could do, but you, you don't have to travel necessarily to have your eyes open to what, uh, to the fact that God is much, much bigger than the things that you might assume to be true of, of your life or of God. And that actually is a gift to us, even though it can be a little bit frightening to suddenly realize, oh man, I can't take nearly as much for granted as I did before. Not even the fact that I ought to 
have a house or a, uh, you know, a steady income or even as Jesus would tell us, like not even that I would, could take for granted that I have a place to lay my head at night. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of this too is why a lot of the, those nuns that you mentioned, those who don't identify, they tend to be younger. They tend to see these, these hypocrisies and they want nothing to do with the church um, because of a lot of the stuff we we're even talking about. Um, and uh, it's interesting how that's increasing in America. It's already drastically increased in Europe. Um, and I, it's going to be interesting to see if, if America is going to fall like Europe when it comes to numbers with Christianity. Um, we, we, we were seeing different forms of Christianity rising in the South. I mean, there's a Catholic uh, Pentecostal type emerging in various parts of South America. You have the southern parts of Africa, and then you have the various Asian cultures. Like South Korea is a fascinating study, um, and they're they're a country that's pretty good economically. Um, and how quickly the past century, like over half the country, became Christian. And I know, like, there's part of the Korean culture is they pray every morning, they gather at church. I think there's something powerful there with prayer that that we we tend to not talk about. Um, and then you have other models of, of growth. But it's interesting too before, like. Europe and white white Christianity became a thing like people forget that Christianity originated in the Middle East <laughs> and that the early hubs of Christianity were uh, Jerusalem, the Cappadocian, Central Turkey, uh, North Africa uh, and then they had their fall and then it moved to Europe and then you had persecuted Christians coming to America and now it's like coming full circle. It's very fascinating that this is not just the first shift of this there's there's been multiple shifts of the rise and falls of Christianity. It is a, uh, I mean, it was a bit of a landmark. It seemed like a landmark in around 1980. It seems like the, the demographics shifted to the point where there was more Christians in the global South than there was in the West. Uh, and it's only that, that percentage, that ratio has only been continuing to tilt. But that had, that was a landmark shift in 1980, but not because the Christian church had always been that way. It had only been that way for about a thousand years or so, uh, because there had been almost a millennium before that, where certainly like global South Christians were more numerous uh, than European or European descendant Christians. And if anything to me, like this is all just reason to, I don't worry much for the future of the church uh, in any place. And if anything, like this is, a, this is room for a lot of excitement, as you're pointing out, even in your example of Korea, like we're only going to, if a hundred years from now, the real center of uh, the Christian church is in Shanghai, we are only going to be like, we're gonna be immensely blessed by that. We're gonna be immensely blessed uh, to discover what more God is doing in all sorts of different cultures, traditions, people's histories and stories. Um, that's going to be just exciting and a really rich thing. And if there's a part of us that feels some anxiety about that. Um, that's a thing to bring back to God and, and to just ask what, what else we are uh, privileging there over and above the real advance of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also love the, like, there's also like other cultures, like I'm Armenian, you come from a Catholic, I mean, Irish background, right, Patrick? Uh, that's right. It's yeah. St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. But there's also <laughs> like, there, there's always these like subgroups or remnants like that, like no matter what persecution we may have faced as a people, like, yeah, we're, we're still Christ followers. Um, 
and there's always those outliers too uh, to all this, uh, which is always fascinating. Um, Absolutely. Even for us in the West, even if even if uh, Christianity was to become, I mean, it's not remotely close to being sort of a, in a place of actual persecution. But even if it was, like there is something that can be really uh, difficult, but rich and clarifying for us in our own experience. And I think that's part of what you've seen in the Armenian people's history. I mean, I'd be curious to, to hear more of what you think about, um, uh, not to put you entirely on the spot, and maybe you've, you've talked about this at length before, but um, this sensibility of, of uh, Armenia as Christian nation and, uh, and the way in which like something that God has done has really been preserved in that and also the ways in which uh, there is even still sometimes like a remnant within a Christian nation that has to be preserved. I don't know if that, if that matches your sense of it, but I'd be really curious to hear what's going on there. Totally. I mean, I'm I'm an Armenian Protestant for a reason because I uh, you always want moments of reformation. Not that you're trying to create something brand new. It's just you want to revisit this the the course stuff. So uh, like the Armenian Evangelical Movement started to get the Bible in the vernacular language so the people could reclaim their traditions and understand what what the why behind them. And you have that um, oftentimes where where over time they become cultural. Uh, norms without understanding the why behind them, and then, then it could turn into weird legalism. So yeah, there's definitely that throughout the history, um, but but there's this also perseverance and like promise of God um, that kind of upholds it. Like it doesn't make sense why Armenians still are Christian, like considering all the persecution we've endured. But it's just forged us to to hold on to to this important thing, and that. God has a plan for the nations. And I think I think we have to have a more biblical understanding of that word. Because I think when the Bible speaks of nations, it's not talking about borders. It's actually talking about family trees and, and genetic patterns. So so I always view like uh, nation groups more of a diaspora or wherever they are versus the land, even though there is theology of land and that's important. But I think that's an important aspect in all this uh, to also view a, a biblical idea of nation. Uh, not connected to the land. So the Israelites didn't have the land, but they, they were still a nation, right? Um, that, that, that sort of understanding of, uh, is more biblical than I think than these uh, man-made borders. Um, so that's Certainly, an important- and I would include, yeah, I would include even uh, what you're describing in terms of like family trees and even like a shared sense of story and, and of history. I mean, I think that there is a way in which the Armenian church as, as an example, um, has and like can continue to be renewed by the story of the gospel in its own history, like in its own, uh, can be in a sense reformed by its own story and the, the example of what God has done in the past. And that will continue to be true for us in as American Christians as well. There is a possibility, um, not that we will have to just kind of throw our hands up in the air and say, well, I guess Christianity just doesn't belong to these shores anymore, but that we can actually hope for and expect a, a reformation in a way that looks back to what God has really done uh, and wants to point out to us in our own story as a people. Yeah, absolutely. And I have that hope for this country um, uh, because of its history, because of the revivals, because uh, a lot of persecuted Christian groups came to find freedom here, that, that, that there is a lot to reclaim here. Um, 
if we if we if we understand our history as Americans too, that that need to be revisited. And it's quite beautiful uh, when the best parts of American Christianity are 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 there versus the the negatives that we were talking about. So I, I share your optimism um, um, that that of course there there needs to be some sort of wake up in America right now. Um, and I think part of the beauty of it, like just being a pastor in New York City, the churches that are really like holding it together seem to be the, the ethnic churches. <laughs> and that's the part of America, right? You have like people coming here for freedom of worship, freedom of new opportunities. And uh, it, we're one of the few places in the world where we could actually have that uh, church where you have all the nations gathered um, because we are here. Um, uh, versus other parts where it's more it's much of the same. So there's definitely some some something to, to be hopeful about and uh, and I think it I think it's gonna happen, but but I think if the church doesn't own up to the hypocrisies and call it sin and not wake up and not think from a bigger perspective, it's gonna hit the, the, the nuns number is gonna just increase. But we'll see what happens. God God is God is in charge, right? Amen to that. Amen to that. All right. Thank you, Patrick Dunn, the Reverend Dr. Patrick Dunn. Happy St. Patrick's Day to those who are celebrating. Uh, please do not sin in your celebration, but have a good time. And uh, thanks for watching and tune in to the next episode of Christ and Coffee. God bless you and thank you for listening. Oh.